Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the biggest issues that we've seen unfold in recent times with the COVID pandemic is the way in which uh, events that have been shut down, completely cut when the cut off when the guillotine came down in March. Theatres shut down. Uh, concert venues shut down and more importantly for some people in Australia sport ceased to take place all over the shop. One of the people that will be joining me today uh, with the podcast is Bill Woods. He's a, a sportscaster extraordinaire I think you'd say. He's been, been around the traps predominantly in the past couple of decades with the Chen Network and also Sky News. Bill's got a lot of experience in the area and he'd be able to give us some diagnosis of what the pandemic means for the way in which sport operates in Australia today. Bill, thanks for joining me. G'day, Tom. Great to be with you, mate. Thank you. Thank you for coming along. Now, before we go into the COVID stuff, there are people who won't necessarily know where you've come from in terms of your career. Um, and, and there are there are members of the audience of this podcast who are sitting in Germany and France and wherever have you, uh, as well as Australia. It, what would your career look like uh, on a couple of PowerPoint slides? Oh wow, uh, that's quite complex, Tom. Because um, I, uh, unlike a lot of people today who have very fixed and um, strongly thought out career paths, I sort of let events carry me along. Bear in mind, those events began way back in the late 70s. So I graduated from university hoping to become a, a print journalist initially. And um, I did a, a brief radio course when the market was a little bit depressed. Uh, there were no cadetships around. And I was also, and still am to some degree, would you believe, uh, very introverted when it comes to self-promotion. You might find that hard to believe, but it's a fact. Um, so back then I was very shy and got a cadetship um, uh, with a radio station as, a, as an announcer, not a journalist. And after nine months to 12 months in the country of New South Wales, I got a Sydney newsroom cadetship. Uh, so a little bit later than some, I sort of took the long route, but uh, I was in there doing all kinds of news reporting and presenting on radio. And then in 1989, I was picked up by the 10 Network uh, as a sports reporter and presenter. And uh, because at that time I'd been focusing on sport for my particular radio station, uh, I'd not long covered Wimbledon and a few other big events. So uh, then started 24 years with 10, doing just about everything except washing the car of the CEO, which I probably should have done or I'd still be there today. Um, and uh, I, I was, you name it, I did it, you know, writing, producing, uh, commentating, um, mainly presenting. Um, I guess I started to focus on presenting and interviewing and, and sort of those sort of um, programs towards the end. And I was a news anchor um, for uh, five or six years uh, at five o'clock. Uh, the, the alternative um, in New South Wales to say Steve Quartermain at the time in, in, in Melbourne. Uh, Quarters and I are still good mates today. And uh, anyway, um, from there, I, I went on to do a variety of projects, cut loose from 10. I sort of freelanced for a while doing talkback radio, drive time yeah, for TUE in Sydney and uh, a few other sports shows for Seven. And, uh, and and more recently, as you said, for the Sky New, Sky Channel, Fox Sports sort of umbrella. Um, 
that's all cross-owned and cross-run, so it's too complicated to go into. But anyway, that's where I was until, uh, again, being cut loose at the start of the year. Now, one of the most fascinating discussions I've ever heard about motor racing um, actually took place while you were at 10 hosting the V8, a V8 Supercars panel. Mm-hmm. I think it was on a Sunday afternoon. Yes, V8 Superstars, we called it. It was a, an interesting show. Um, because the, and do you understand why it appeals to, to my sense of forensics? The discussion was all about the parity between race teams mm. and how you, how you try and get to the point where the only element of contest, the only element that matters on that grid is the skill of the driver. Mm. And it was one of the most fascinating discussions I've ever heard. Yes, and, and it's one that's just ongoing in motorsport. That's probably what turns off uh, some sports fans when it comes to motorsport. Um, I'm unique in that there's not a sport I haven't enjoyed watching and, and enjoy covering and, and devote time to. Most sports journos have a sport they don't particularly like, uh, even if they don't admit it. And uh, some they will publicly you know, denounce uh, and, and make quite a good living out of doing that on a regular basis. Motorsport, I find absolutely fascinating. There are a lot of parallels with horse racing um, in, in the sense of the industrial side of it, the, uh, the, the business side of it, the, and the team um, aspect of it. But primarily, um, I've always been fascinated with driver versus driver. I'm not a mechanically minded person. I love cars. And I love driving. Um, and I certainly love racing. But um, I'm more into the personalities and, and, and the human factor. Um, but it, it's, it, it, it is an intrinsic and ongoing uh, argument in motor racing as to what extent you let the technology um, and the, the use of it and the application of it dictate the, the results or the differences between teams. Um, I've always been more inclined to, to try and achieve as, as much uh, as, of parity as possible um, but technology has also allowed us to create variables within that. Uh, for example, with uh, Formula One, where you've got, um, you know, you can you can change your aerodynamics mid-race and and uh, fuel consumption, all those things. Um, that that enables you to have a strategic perspective on the sport, and I think that's okay, providing everyone gets the same choices. Um, but there are other aspects of Formula One that are inherently uh, unfair, and that is, you know, the amount of money spent on development and parts, etc. That's always going to be the problem with motor racing: is is this constant? How much how much do you allow the the knowledge of technology uh, to to interfere with uh, the driver to driver contest? And you could argue the two guys who suffered most from that would be Australians, Mark Webber and Daniel Ricciardo, who, had they been with top teams at the time, probably would have been world champions, and hopefully Daniel still could be. Um, and, and that's the great difficulty in with coming to terms with that kind of thing. But you know what? If you look at other sports, um, for example, you know, AFL, rugby league, the wealthier teams, even though there are so many elements of parity built into the system, such as draft and salary cap and all these things, um, the wealthier teams still find a way to get an edge on the others. Um, and, and, you know, even if it means recruiting the best people behind the scenes so that they attract better players to their club, et cetera, et cetera, and all these other little mechanisms. So, yes, parity is an interesting discussion. We could go on forever. You did, but, but just on what you've said, you, 
it detects parody as a general concept that that is the contest between drivers or the contest between tennis players or the contest between athletes on a you know, on tra in track and field at the Olympics. Uh, the extent to which sports are clean, the extent to which technology, i.e. <laughs> drug use, interferes with that. I mean, the, the concept of parity flows through the whole whole uh, space of sport, doesn't it? It's a great point. And you know what? As you were speaking, I was thinking, well, swimming, track and field, these are sports where you're getting as close as possible to parity. But then if you look at it a little more deeply, how about the kids from poor countries who don't have access to the best training facilities, the best training techniques, um, and uh, the best equipment, whether it, be, it could be a pair of running shoes, for example, for a, for a kid, um, if that's all they need. All these things must be factored in. You know, your social environment is a, is a huge input into how well you become as an athlete. I grew up in a small country town on the far south coast of New South Wales. Wonderful. I wouldn't trade that upbringing for anything other than the fact that I played a lot of sport as a kid. And um, apart from my own, you know, inhibitions and other factors as an individual athlete, I know I was disadvantaged when I went to state uh, contests, whether it was I did it, I, I was a swimmer and I was also a, a sprinter in track and field. And I remember, you know, taking my bare feet to a track meet in Wollongong and I was racing against kids in spikes. And, and so, yes, you're right. There are lots of environmental aspects that affect parity, even in the sports that appear to be totally pure. Um, so, yeah, I, I find that all very fascinating. And, and um, it's, well, you know, whether it's sport or business, as you would know better than I, um, whatever you can do to get an edge, you'll get it or take it. Speaking of uh, business and getting, getting an edge and sort of, taking the, the bull by the horns, uh, the sports sector's lost a lot of the capacity to do that over the past three to four months as a result of COVID. What have you noticed just in your general observations about the way in which the pandemic has hit the, uh, hit the sporting world? Wow. Um, interesting. Um, it's, uh, first of all, I was very impressed with the collegiate approach um, taken by the NRL, which is probably no more than other sports, but notoriously fractured by, you know, factionalism and all sorts of other problems. Uh, but they did pull together very well. And I guess you've got to give Peter Volandis a rap for that. Uh, the AFL has done a very good job as well uh, to, to sort of pull everything together and, and get it happening. But there are so many different angles, Tom, you know, to, to what's been going on. One of One that you and I had discussed prior to this conversation was the the whole concept of of being in a hub or a bubble whatever you want to call it the camp mentality and and a couple of teams have been seriously disadvantaged uh, for example the wa teams in the afl uh, perhaps now the victorian teams who knows this is a fluid situation as we speak um, um and and of course the the famously the new zealand warriors in in the nrl the entire competition hinged on their ability to to come to australia and participate and their willingness to to sacrifice uh, all the benefits of operating from home, you know. And and it's funny, but as you've mentioned, I'm old enough to go back a long way when uh, there was a, an entirely different approach to team professional sport where particularly male teams were, were seen to be uh, better off in a hub or a bubble 
the, the camp mentality has long been a tool used by coaches, for example, to isolate their team, create a sense of them against us, uh, bond the team particularly, get them to, uh, to be familiar with each other and comfortable with each other, and then unleash them on the field as a, as a much more potent force. Back when Ricky Stewart, now coach of the Canberra Raiders, was coaching Cronulla, he had a serious problem with a loss of form. And uh, a, a little bit against the grain, even at the time, uh, he took them into a camp away from their families for a couple of weeks, um, on and off. And uh, it, it worked quite well to turn their season around. That thinking's changed dramatically. We've seen in all fronts uh, now a much greater sense um, of mental health for players. It's, it's, they're, they're two words, by the way, that back when I was young, you'd never hear in a sentence relating to sport. Um, now, of course, it's a daily discussion. And so what they've found is that players need to be around their families. They need to be with their partners. They need to be with their kids, if that applies. They need to be with their parents or, or siblings. So these things have all been discovered with a lot more research and depth of interest. And uh, I think I'm probably wrong, but one of the earliest recollections I can have of this mentality changing is when they started to allow partners to go with Australian cricket teams on overseas tours. Once upon a time, it was the great thing. The guys got to go away together. You know, it was like it was like the old sexist boys' own fishing trip and things like that. Now that's all been so you know debunked as a as a as an effective way of a team performing because the guys actually wanted to be with their families most times, um, and uh, and so yes, it, it's it's fascinating to see how um, how these these clubs and the players' associations particularly have been really resenting the idea of, of isolation um, and lockdown. And that's been a massive part of the conversation with, with getting all these things to work. That's just one of, of the many aspects of what's going on. There's a whole lot of other stuff here too. One particular thing that I'd, I'd like to discuss when I get an opportunity with a sporting forum is in years to come, would you like to see an asterisk placed next to the various sporting seasons that have been affected by this COVID-19 shutdown. And goodness knows it may well go into next year too. Would you like to see that? Because I, as a Liverpool supporter, uh, one of the many teams I support, um, would like to think that there shouldn't be an asterisk against the English Premier League, that Liverpool, uh, despite the disruption to the season, was so far in front, they, were, they would be legitimate champions. And uh, I, I think that's been proven on the resumption. However, there are many other sports, such as the NRL and the AFL, and as I've just explained, where teams have been seriously disadvantaged. So whoever wins those competitions, if you're a fan of that club, would you be content to see an asterisk next to it? What do you think? Probably not. But if you're sitting there, you might want to note that there's been something that happened from, from the point of view of history during the season that's impacted that that particular premiership uh, period uh, simply because it's a fact. There's been an impact. Sport's been knocked about. Mm -hmm. um, whether it should undermine the, which you're saying, the, the prestige of winning a cup that year or not is, a, I think, a separate and distinct question. Yeah, I, 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 I'm open-minded about it. I know if I was a fan of a particular club. I mean, look at the AFL ladder now. And and you would think, wow, would you have thought that would be the ladder? I know it's early days, uh, but 
you know, given the disruption that's still to come, there's no doubt about that. I, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, if if one of these clubs that we didn't expect manages to jag the flag uh, this season, um, you know, it, it's going to be very interesting how people approach it. The the other interesting thing is um, it hasn't greatly affected the rugby league competition, I think, um, apart from the Warriors, whose whose ability to win was questionable from the start anyway. Uh, that that is very much formed into a, a, a competition of two halves. There are the haves and the have-nots. It's a, such a clear delineation this year, with maybe one or two exceptions around the, you know, the middle of the competition. But uh, the top eight you see now in the NRL is probably what you're going to see at the end of it, which is most unusual. Um, and that doesn't seem to have been affected greatly by by the virus. Um, so, yes, it, it'll be interesting. You could argue perhaps that teams like the Storm, you know, they've had so much disruption trying to get a camp uh, and get themselves sorted out. Uh, but on the other hand, they are a club that um, has a, the, the best coach at, at the moment in the game and um, is probably best able to handle it. Uh, had it been another club, for example, New Zealand, that has its own share of problems anyway going into the uh, the lockdown or the, the, the bubble, um, you know, it only opens up the wounds that are already there. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how this is this is judged in, in history. There's something else. Though. We're talking about, we've just spoken about sports administration. We've looked at the clubs. There's another, there's something else that's missing when you're watching this, this particular re-emergence or re-ignition of the seasons. And that is the crowds in the stadiums. Now, how much how much do you think that's going to impact on the way in which the season plays out? It's interesting. I I I, I get varying reports from players as to you know the atmospheric influence that there's a long held theory in rugby league that the crowd has an influence on referees, for example in some of the most basic elements of policing the game, for example, uh, keeping teams on side. Um, the crowd does, you know, tend to roar when a set is being played out and they see a team consistently offside. If it's if it's the away team, um, they will they will let the referee know about it. And, and it's very hard if you're a referee not to be influenced by that. I don't know if umpires are as greatly influenced by an AFL crowd um, as, as referees are in these areas because I... I don't know if there's any um, um, positional uh, policing uh, that 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 is obvious to the crowd, as there is in rugby league. You know, keeping the teams apart, for example, as opposed to footy, where it's you know they're all in together. So the the crowd's influence is an interesting one, and and players, more importantly, I think the motivational side of things, um, that's often down to the individuals, and it brings us to um, how well prepared. A team can be and how much they rely on on home crowd atmosphere i mean it's, it's well documented over the years in all kinds of competitions all around the world some teams are particularly good at home uh not so good away um, that's an interesting development and each team has its own personality too tom um from from year to year and it may only take a couple of changes in personnel for example to completely adjust the personality of that team uh to be a team that thrives on different factors so all this stuff's very interesting conversation, and it's just being tossed around like never before. It's uh, I've been to a couple of games, by the way. I'm I'm sort of an ambassador for the Canterbury Bankstown Rugby League Club, so I host 
uh, a corporate room at their home games whenever I can. And I've been to two games now without the crowd, with all the cardboard cutouts. And one thing I emphasise to the to the 50-odd people in the room who are all spaced out, it's very weird, is, um, look, don't feel uncomfortable. Go out, follow all the rules, but enjoy something that hopefully is unique. Um, listen to the sound of the game without the crowd and, and enjoy it for what it is. It's like going to a park game um, when you're a kid and, and actually watching the best players in the world playing in your local park. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. And, and I, I must admit, I've, I have savoured my live uh, footy um, with, with no sound <laughs> other than the players calling out and the smack of bodies. Um, it, and that's the sort of thing that somebody sitting at home wouldn't even appreciate. Mm. Right, because if you're in the stadium and, and it's been a while, I mean, I'm, I'm talking ages since I've even been to a live stadium gig for a music, mm. uh, for a music artist. Um, almost embarrassed to say it's probably about three years now, but that's that's not a hit on there. It uh, uh, was actually Springsteen, by the way. The and it um, and that was three three almost three and a half hours of. Absolute bliss. Yeah, but yeah, to be in a position where there's no other noise, other than watching the game and what you, and you're focused on the tech, the technicality of the game being played, not just all of the people and the characters sitting around you. That that's a completely different experience. I found that um, I was conversing with the fans around me more than I probably normally would. Um, maybe that's to do with the absence of sound. I don't know. Um, it also might be to do with, you know, our team's not going very well at the moment. So there's a lot of soul searching going on, <laughs> but, uh, it was, it was interesting. We're all spaced, of course, I must emphasize that. Uh, but you know, one and a half to two meters, you can still talk to each other. Um, it was, it was interesting. It was like, I don't know how you describe it, Tom, instead of say, say good, good example. It was like a Springsteen concert versus, uh, maybe a jazz band playing in a bar. <laughs> oh, it was I, like I, that. I've, I've done that. I've done that too. Um, <laughs> a jazz band playing in the bar doesn't actually draw the few a huge crowd, um, and that's probably it, it me. By the way, that's my thing. I love jazz, but anyway, go. <laughs> oh, well, well, listen, in, in another month, in a month's time, we can talk music. Okay, yeah, but... any time. <laughs> but the the thing that people are grappling with at the moment, and sports is used as a metaphor everywhere, Bill. The thing that grapple, people are grappling with at the moment is how you pull yourself out of what is a, a, an economic funk. Mm. Um, you've seen a, a lot of ups and downs with sporting clubs. And you've observed how people have motivated sides or individuals, depending on the sport, to get themselves up and running. What are some of the techniques that have stood out to you that, that those listening might pick up on and then think about it as they're, as they're grappling with how they motivate themselves again? Well, firstly, the, the whole concept of motivation now is, is hugely complex and far more intricate than it ever was. And, you know, I think it's the oldest thing in the book uh, we both know, uh, that is the corporate world seeking motivation and other sort of um, um, 
mechanisms and tools from from the sporting world. Uh, but it's I think it's still relevant because there is a purity. Um, and please forgive the uh, bear with me on this because I know there's a lot of corruption in sport. But I mean, in in the ideal of sport, there is still a lot of purity. That the the idea of people actually out there in competition against one another, uh, whether it's in a stadium or on a field or whatever, there is a, still a purity in that. Um, the ideal of it is still there. It has that hasn't been corrupted, even though there are many other factors that, that corrupt it. But and and getting to the motivational side of things, I think what's what's uh, in place now is a much heightened sensitivity to to the needs of the individual within the team. So, for example, once upon a time, and coaches still do this, they'll take their team to a movie. Um, and uh, uh, there, there are various, you know, usually war films <laughs> when it comes to men's football teams, uh, but there are various other films that they use. There are lots of cliched and stereotyped sort of motivational mechanisms. Um, but now, now I find that coaches are now far more attentive to the individual I know this sounds strange, but they are learning that uh, each player has their own different motivations and requirements, um, particularly as we are now more sensitive to the cultural backgrounds of players. You know, um, the for example, and this is this has a, a been a, a big factor in the decisions made by the NRL regarding their resumption and the bubble and all those things. Um, the the huge number of Pacific Islanders, uh, Polynesian players. In, in rugby league, uh, they have a, a huge, a huge emphasis in their lives on family and and uh, the the larger family, not the immediate family too. So, uh, and that's just one of many cultural aspects that 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 uh, coaches have have had to become uh, more aware of over the years. And uh, these these things now are what is are what are applied. So the the good coaches are able to talk to each of the players differently as opposed to the old style coach who basically said, this is how I talk to you. This is how I will convey uh, my meaning. And if you don't like it, well, too bad. You'll fall through the cracks. You can go and play elsewhere or stop playing at all. Um, that's become a far more nuanced job. And I think, uh, you know, hats off to a lot of the successful coaches these days who are able to get people to, forgive me for the cliche, buy in. Um, but that said, there are still a lot of the old fashioned things, you know, team bonding is done. It's a lot more politically correct now. Um, excuse the French, but back in the old days, any rugby league coach would take their players out to get pissed, you know, at some stage during the season. And it's still referred to in joking manner. Um, and, and even now in state of origin camps or national teams, for example, uh, there'll be the reference to, you know, the boys are going out or the girls, whatever it is. Um, you know, to, to bond. But now, of course, there's a greater emphasis on just having a meal together or, you know, doing something a little more sociable than, than you know, getting drunk. So there, there are still a few old, old mechanisms applied, but in a different way. But I think the greatest thing now is, is this emphasis on the individual, which I find, find fascinating because that's a lot harder to do, Tom. You know, it's a lot harder to do for a coach. And you know what? I don't know if managers do this too well in business. If you want me to get on a soapbox for five minutes, actually not that long, don't worry. Um, um, one well, thing, uh, I, uh, so I'm, I'm couriering the soapbox over to you now. <laughs> Here it is. Thank you. <laughs> Let me get up on it. Ah, there it is. Thank you. Um, okay. I've found this in the media industry, and I'm sure 
I'm sure it is pervasive in business everywhere because TV is just another form of business. I find management appallingly, particularly middle management, appallingly lazy. They are sensitive only to those people who jump up and down in front of them. In other words, they oil the squeaky wheel. That person could be hugely ambitious and a major suck up. They could also be an angry kind of person who, you know, complains about everything and likes to say they don't suffer fools, which is often a euphemism for just being a dickhead. Now, those sort of people get the attention of management. The good, quiet, hardworking achievers are often missed. Because why? They don't walk into the manager's office. They're too busy doing their damn job. I've been told over the years by producers, you didn't get that gig because I didn't think you wanted it. Why? Well, so-and-so raced into the office and said he wanted to do it. Well, is that the only requirement for this job? That the person who came in and asked for it gets it? What about qualifications? I find coaching now is far more sensitive to who actually has ability and who can do the job. In other words, if you're the quiet achiever in the team, you will be noticed. They go, they go about seriously trying to recognize talent. They don't just oil the squeaky wheel. And what we have created is an entire generation of fake it till you make it people. All they're worried about is creating the pretense of achievement instead of actually achieving. That's something we can learn from sport. You make a, make an excellent point, and there's something else that um, I would like to segue to uh, because we're seeing a lot of this discussion in the corporate sector right now uh, all over the place. Um, fame can get to some people's heads. Mm. Okay? Um, there's a lot of... Uh, there are certain areas in, the, in business, as, as in sport, where people's self-importance seems to take over. Um, We've seen in the past week um, the the sort of revelations about the behaviour of a certain high court judge, for example. Uh, And we know that sports clubs have that same problem, that the the, the disrespect that is shown by some individuals in sports clubs to, to women. How do you... What does sport need to do? And then, by corollary, it's a lesson business has got to embrace as well. What does sport need to do to to sort of um, kick the pedestal from underneath the self-important people who think they can do anything? That's a very good point. I, I really believe sport can lead the way in this aspect, for the the very reasons I've just outlined, in that I I still think that the ideal of sport is an important thing. Um, And I know that's a very subtle point because, you know, I repeat that you can straight away bounce back at me and say, oh, for goodness sake, Woodsy, look at all the corruption in sport, you know. Uh, However... Look at all the the poor behaviour in politics. Look at all the poor behaviour in the law. Look at the poor behaviour in some uh, areas of the accounting world. Yep. Uh, look at the poor behaviour in in um, sort of the clerical religious circles. You can go on if you want to focus on that. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I come back to the point that correct um, that that's human nature, sadly. But the ideal in sport is still in place, whereas I think in a lot of other areas, 
um, the ideals have, have disintegrated and have been replaced by um, uh, far more cynical and, um, and uh, um, well, I won't say corrupt, but, but you know, like, well, for example, the, the, we've seen recently, and I'm, I'm getting a little bit off the topic, I will come back to what you were saying about leading the way in, in, in areas like sexism and racism. Uh, but but just quickly, the, 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 the whole structure of politics, for example, since the branch stacking um, uh, story came out uh, in Victoria, and I, and I must point out that, you know, they are not alone in that practice. It just happens to be them at this time who's had the publicity. We all know that. So, you know, how do you change the system so that it's not inherently corrupt? Because what happens is, is, is that you do get, you do after a while find that the structures themselves become inherently difficult for honest people and good people to 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 succeed therefore it must change like i was saying with the business practice with management you know management needs to 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 take more time to get out of their comfortable leather chairs in their office and get out in the workplace and identify the people who are actually working and not just sit on their backsides and wait for the the, the squawkers to come in and and, and promote themselves um, and likewise uh, perhaps we need to change our structures uh, in these areas, our system, so to speak, to to try and make it easier um, for for the good people to succeed. So, getting back to your point, I think sport, in that sense, still has an ideal of merit. It's still uh, fundamentally a meritocracy, uh, notwithstanding again some of the things I've I've mentioned. Um, but but the ideal is that, and and I think we can. I've been a little bit disappointed. I I naively. Um, thought that that we're actually in a pretty good place. And I used to say on the Bill and Boz show with with Mark Bosnich that um, I thought sport could lead the world in in the sense of uniting humanity in 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 destroying sexism and racism, which I don't think can be ever totally destroyed. But um, I think it uh, it can be it can certainly be um, be you know uh, uh, reduced. Well, yeah, but what you're basically saying is you can't kill an you can't completely kill an idea or kill behaviours. But what you can yeah. do is is make it sufficiently unfashionable so people steer clear of talk, steer clear of wanting to be advocates for that kind of poor behaviour. Uh, yes, and I agree. I, I and I think even if an individual, for whatever reason, and there are a vast number of reasons why people are racist or sexist, but whatever reasons are. If you manage to even suppress it for a lengthy period of time, you you can make them come around to a certain way of logical thinking, if you know what I mean. Um, um, and and don't what what we're finding is uh, unfortunately with this opening of many doors in social media, where we're actually giving vent to people who would otherwise have suppressed these notions, and over time actually become educated and and learn that they are actually inaccurate beliefs. Um, and and false beliefs, and and they will ultimately express themselves the right way. But unfortunately, we're we're giving vent to people's raw, uh, uneducated emotions. But on that point, I used to say to Boz, one of the great things about the sporting field is seeing a group of multicultural athletes, you know, of all races, colours, and backgrounds. And Premier League football is a great example of that. My own team, Liverpool, has an extremely diverse collection of players who've achieved a lot of great things together. To see them standing on a field embracing. And and working together, and and breaking down an enormous number of different barriers—religious, social, cultural, uh, physical—then um, 
that to me is a, is a wonderful inspiration for the rest of the world. And yet, and yet we still see increasing or, 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 or a lot of evidence of, of racism among the fans. And I think to myself, this person is watching a fine example of humanity combining, as it should, for a common cause, and they still don't get it? They still want to pick on the black guy? I, I just find it, it just beggars belief, and it's greatly disappointing. And, and you know, this, 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 whole, um, this whole argument over Heredia Lumumba's situation, you know, and the involvement of, I don't want to pick on Collingwood because, it, as I said, it's another example of this club at this time. Uh, going through this uh, this controversy, I'm not I'm not saying they're innocent either, by the way. But the point I'm trying to make is that it has been a bit disappointing to me lately that sport has not been the example that I thought it would be. And to hear, and I was a great supporter and still am of, of Adam Goods, and it was so sad to speak to him recently. Well, when I say recently now, it's late last year. Time flies when you're locked down. Um, but I was at a function with him, and I said, "Mate, why don't you come on the show?" And he said, "Mate, as long as I don't have to talk about footy." which is so sad. Um, it's so sad that one of our great players feels that way. Um, and I, it just cuts me when I hear him say that. Um, and, and I think sport's still got a long way to go, obviously. I, there are many, many other stories. Um, I wrote a book on Hazem El Masri, um, the, the, one of the great Muslim rugby league players, and he's a good mate of mine, and has told me some interesting stories. And he is one of the most um, uh, open-minded um, you know, forgiving people you could ever meet. And there was a lot of casual racism, as you can imagine, uh, when he first started playing rugby league, a, a sport that was totally unfamiliar with a professional Muslim player at the time, you can imagine, um, and um, has uh, has had some great stories. But I'll tell you what, he's, his attitude is astonishing in, in terms of how he understands the ignorance behind the, the comments that he, that he faced and how he went about educating the people uh, rather than, you know, confronting them. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think there are certain environments, whether it's induced by the club or the coach at the time, uh, or maybe the playing group, it's hard to say, um, where it's it's not that easy. And and I think, um, you know, th these are these are uh, areas we really need to, to, to unite on. Um, and here's another funny point. Um, some time ago, I can't remember which show it was, we, we discussed this aspect, uh, this, this racism aspect on Bill and Boz. And uh, there was initially a reluctance to discuss the, the concept. And the reason being was that we had no Indigenous players on the panel or no, or no um, you know, black players on the, on the panel that night. And we were worried about being accused of, you know, do you bring up this topic when there are no uh, black players? And well, I refer to that term. It was you're about sitting, racism. Yeah, but you were sitting there with a guy um, of Croatian descent who would have grown up the way I had um, from time to time, watching soccer before he played, mm. looking at and living in an environment where yeah, his parents and, and, and relatives and friends were essentially being discriminated against. Yes. Um, being called all sorts of things, being called terrorists, um, being called, uh, you know, I remember well uh, somebody thinking it was funny to say, oh, Croatian, are you? Uh, does that mean you, you drive around with bomb parts in your boot? Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, and, 
there's that. You could have gone there mm. with Mark Bosick because there's a classic example of, you know, yes, he's white. Mm. But think about all the other elements and cultural features that comes with um, him having the, the heritage that he has. That, that's true, and, and that's certainly a valid point. Um, but, but even given that the, uh, the topic was particularly about people of colour, um, yeah. I, I posed this, though, and I, we, we restricted the discussion, um, and I said it on Sky News some time ago when I was asked about the, um, the Indigenous players deciding not to sing the national anthem. I said to, um, it might have been Spearsy on Sky News at the time, um, I am not going to stand here and judge an Indigenous player on how he should uh, uh, approach the national anthem because I'm not in their, in his shoes um, or her shoes for that matter. And I said, so it's not fair for me to make comment on that because I have not lived their experience. And I totally agree with that uh, position still. However, the funny part about this discussion was that you will get criticism um, for not for having a bunch of white guys, for example, and I know a Premier League panel was criticised for it too. But the sad part about it was, they weren't trying to interpret or discuss the experience of uh, a black player in in the Premier League. What they were talking about was how the white people, the white players, could better support their teammates and what should they do to help them. For example, if a black player says, "I've copped enough of this abuse, I'm walking off." the white guy should walk straight off with him. And that was the discussion. So the discussion was about what white people could do. And yet they were still criticised for not having representation on that panel. So this is how complicated and difficult these these scenarios are to deal with. Um, I, I firmly believe, you know, for example, you know, to talk about women's sport, a bunch of guys can talk about women's sport, providing they do it in the right context. But there are still people who will criticise you for not having a woman on the panel on that night. And yet the previous night, you can have three women on the panel talking about men's sport. No one thinks anything more about it. This, so, is, the, this is the same discussion people have about, you know, the drum on the ABC or Q&A or panels mm. on Sky News or whatever. If the, new, if the news event... Uh, happens on a particular day. Do you then, do you then ring fence that and say we can't touch it because the panel we've got on tonight is composed of you know, persons mm. X, Y, and Z, and none of them have have that background. And I understand the viewers thinking that you can just click your fingers and get any representation you know you like from anywhere in Australia at the time. And technically, with Skype and all those things, um, it's possible, but it's not always easy. Um, quite often, newsrooms try very hard. To get a representative panel, if you if you can't, you then have to be just careful how you how you channel the discussion, and but you it, don't try and pretend to put yourself in anyone else's shoes or speak for anyone else. But there are certainly other ways you can contribute to the conversation. So I think viewers need to be a little more open minded. But then again, you know we're we're also in an age where the scrutiny on social media is is frankly appalling, um, and um, and very. Well, I mean, you, you know you. Your former Sky colleague and, and someone I've come to know well, David Spears, cops it every time there's a there's a panel that doesn't look like um, look like what some people on Twitter want to see on a Sunday morning, and and yeah. the guys who put insiders together cop it mercilessly. And they start picking on the fact that Spearsy worked in Sky News, just well, the fact that he worked there. When I can't recall, I've never seen a more 
Um, and there are plenty of them, don't get me wrong, but there are none more objective than, than Spearsy when it comes to politics. He's, ab he, ab absolutely. I just, yeah. And, and I, know, I know what he's like when he interviews people. He's done me, well, not quite done me over, but I've been at the other end of his questions. Mm, mm. And I know how he, and I know how you know, the, the mind ticks. And it's not about a gotcha moment. It's not about tripping people over. It's about holding people accountable for what they're saying. And look, one of the fundamental problems with, with social media and its uh, alleged diversity is that unfortunately, um, instead of, and I, I love the way a lot of the, uh, the so-called woke people uh, were welcoming the, the social media age and the digital media age and how it saw how they saw the destruction of what they believe was a corrupt and biased mainstream media. Um, I love the way how they trumpeted the opening up of digital media and social media and web pages and all these other things, bloggers, as being now a representation of greater truth and honesty in reporting. And you can now go out there on the internet and you can find the truth. Well, good luck. Good luck with that exploration. You may as well try and find the proverbial needle in the haystack because what is happening yeah. is that we are now finding that any idiot with any uh, perverse or extreme views can find their own little tribe of perverse and extreme people on the internet somewhere and they'll stick with that tribe. What we're seeing now, instead of a greater awakening, an opening of minds, is we're seeing polarisation. We're seeing teams of bullies on one side or the other of politics um, and, and, and various social views, although there's not much crossover there either. Uh, bullying people now who try to find the middle ground. The people who are moderate and reasonable and sensible are trying to please everyone, trying to find some common understanding and humanity. They are being bullied by extremists on social media. So to all those people who thought that this wonderful diversity that would be achieved and this awakening of social media, look what you've reaped. Absolutely. It, it, it is a major issue. It, it, the last few issues we've touched really cut deeply with you, don't they? Uh, look, I've been in the media a long time, and I'm very aware of the biases of mainstream media. There are very many great objective commentators out there, and there are plenty of others whose columns you can pretty much write yourself uh, because you know their particular biases and their backgrounds. And that's okay, as long as there's a, a, a spectrum of, of, of different beliefs there, and I think there are across the various media, to those people who say, oh, you know, the Murdoch press indoctrinates everybody, I understand the biases inherent in some aspects of the Murdoch press, but they're also the Guardian, the ABC, <clears throat> the, the various other uh, sources of news that, that are completely the opposite in their political views. Um, there are plenty of options out there. If you don't, there, there, are free, there is free media out there that you can consume that is diametrically opposed to the, the most high-profile Murdoch commentators or those on Sky, Sky News, if, if that's what you prefer. And getting back to my point, I think you should read everybody because you'll pick up a bit of truth in all of it. But, <coughs> excuse me, but um, there's plenty of opposing uh, opinions out there that you don't even have to pay for. So I don't understand why there's so much emphasis on the influence of, of, the, of the Murdoch media. But um, I, think, I think that we're getting into very different topics from sport here, but that that assumption of the the amount of control that they exercise and and I know it's powerful don't get me wrong uh, but the assumption that 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 control is so effective is actually an insult to the uh, 
to the intelligence of the population who, who are free and, and have access to alternative views. So um, I, I just find that sadly, the reputation and the professionalism of the journalistic uh, fraternity has been eroded a lot in this process of um, opening up to to other forms of free media. Um, there is a, an, a, a, unfortunately a sniggering assumption that most journalists now have some kind of inherent bias because of who they work for or, or how their, their particular workplaces operate. And I think that's unfair because I've worked for a lot of different companies with a lot of different journos. And there are inherent biases, but very few of them are systemic. And that's a that's a good point to sort of uh, and I'm mindful of the time, Bill. So a good yes. point to kind of wrap things up a bit. Now you've you've written books, and you've got a website where people can go and see what you've done. Where can they? Well, can you just briefly take us through the the books you've actually written over the years? Uh, I, I wrote two non-fiction books, uh, Legends of Speed, which was a, a, a story of Australia's great racing drivers. Um, and it's basically, it's actually a story that the narrative of how they all knew each other and uh, the evolution of Australian race drivers um, is is quite interesting. I mean, um, you, you'd pr probably have to be a motorsport enthusiast to, to really enjoy it, but uh, it's not too technical. Uh, and there are a lot of, you know, it's not all talking about, you know, pistons and and uh, fuel consumption, but uh, there's that, um, and that sold very well. And also, so did the biography of Hasmel Masri that I wrote, um, and his life uh, from from war torn Lebanon uh, back in the day, uh, right through to to um, the end of his career, and uh, and the role he's played both socially and in the sporting world. And I wrote a, a fiction book and self published it um, just recently, um, um, which is uh, has the the series title trio based on three young kids who get involved in a a political conspiracy in in Paris, so it's called the Redemption Code, um, and it's it's effectively about uh, and those who of of the extreme left or the extreme right don't try and position me one way or the other here because you it's impossible, um, but this is about the um, uh, a a conspiracy to protect. The, the history of, a, of an extreme right-wing presidential candidate who looks like he may get across the line in the French elections. Uh, something that actually in recent history has is, is stacked up conceivably. Um, uh, and and uh, you've still got characters in Europe generally who are feeding off a lot of the unrest in the world at the moment. Um, and, uh, and, and I think extreme right-wing politics has had an uncomfortable rise. But... Um, yeah, they, the kids get caught up in a conspiracy to um, to protect his uh, his history, and um, there are people operating within a a sort of a French resistance, a modern French resistance, trying to bring him down. So they get uh, caught up in the middle of it. It's quite a a violent, but uh, I think a book that might resonate with a lot of people. Well, I might actually have a look at it myself because I've, I'm having calls to look at some of those issues from a from a master's study point of view. Bill, it's been an absolute delight talking with you today. We could go on all day, but you, you, <laughs> you've, got, you've got other things to do other than to, uh, to whack things around the, uh, around the airwaves with me. Uh, thanks for taking the trouble to, to have a chat. No, it's been fun, Tom. Thank you. I hope I, uh, I, hope I haven't rambled on too much. No, no, you've been absolutely, <laughs> absolutely fine. Not a problem. Um, and to those listeners out there, let's stay safe and look after each other and you can join me again for another podcast.